This is our final message in Titus, our final message in Titus. If you're new with us, it is our practice to simply work our way through one book of the Bible at a time. I have been, as I normally do, slowly working my way through Titus. My dear brother Thomas, he preaches once a month. He's working his way through the Gospel of John, so an even slower pace because he can only do it once a month. But uh, we just make our way through, chapter by chapter, section by section, and we've been doing that with this wonderful letter, and we now are at the end. So if you haven't turned there already, would you turn to Titus chapter 3? We'll be looking at the last part, verses 9 through 15. If you don't have a Bible, there is a blue Bible, most likely, underneath the seat around you, and in that Bible, you can turn to page 998, 998, and that'll bring you to the text. When I was looking at this final section, these concluding words here by the Apostle Paul to Titus, I thought about what came to mind was uh, diversion tactics, diversion tactics. What are those? Well, one definition of diversion tactics is strategies to draw attention away from the principal concern, strategies to draw attention away from the principal concern. Diversion tactics, if you're not familiar with them, they're often implemented in wars, human wars. There was this one article I read, it's fascinating. I was not around at the time, so after, you know, it's history for me, it's before my time. It was 1944, and it's referencing the D-Day Deception. That was the title of the article, the D-Day Deception. According to the article, the Allies those fighting against the enemy, they developed a series of deception operations aimed at obscuring the true place and time of D-Day. In other words, where the attack would actually take place against the enemy, that the allies would come together, unify, and fight. And so they wanted to um, confuse the enemy, basically. And so these are, this is what it is as far as diversion tactics, strategies to draw attention away from the principal concern. And concerning this tactic, it involved the creation of fake armies. They actually called it, it's a fascinating, called the ghost army is actually how they refer to it, the ghost army. Uh, they would send fictional radio traffic. They would deliver false spy reports. And, um, and it included the mounting, as it says, of elaborate but fabricated security plans, including tanks, trucks, and armor that were constructed of inflatable rubber and plywood supplies by a movie studio. Hollywood stepped in to help us fight the war. <laughs> um, it's kind of funny. They talk about the art of war, and they suggested this actually was art. They were, they were developing, and you can look this up. It's just a fascinating thing, inflatable tanks and, and fake army. They even had uh, dummies attached to parachutes jumping out of planes in a particular area. And all of it was intended to deceive the German reconnaissance planes and the military and to make them look somewhere else other than where the primary attack was going to take place so that they would be distracted, so that their the military power would be divided. Diversion tactics, by the way, and they say of these diversion tactics that they save thousands and thousands of the Allies' lives. They have often proven to be very effective very effective in fighting a war, diversion tactics. Beloved, as I have said many times before, we are in a spiritual war. That's not my opinion. 
That's what the Bible says. That's how the Bible describes it. We are in a spiritual war. And in this war, and it would be helpful if we thought about that on a regular basis, honestly. We are in a spiritual war, a spiritual battle. But in this war, diversion tactics of various sorts are deployed by the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people. That would be Satan, a real figure, a very real and formidable enemy. And he deploys these diversion tactics in order to try, and unfortunately he is often successful, but in order to try to draw the church away from from what really matters, from its principal concern. Diversion tactics, when successful, distract the church from and weaken the church for its God-given primary mission. What is our mission, beloved? What is our, yeah, share the gospel. Probably a multitude of ways that we could state that mission. Hopefully we're all trying to get at the same thing, to make him known, to make our Lord known, to advance the gospel, to make disciples, that we would witness well to our glorious Savior by both life and lip, as one person puts it, so that those among us that are still lost, from whom we were once also lost and now saved, but they would also become worshipers and followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our primary mission, beloved. And there's a spiritual war, there's activity working against that very thing all the time. All the time. We are not in a a stage of peace, if you will. And so we shouldn't act like we are, like everything's fine. So, with that, let me back up a little bit and remind you now, after all these weeks, of some of the context of Titus before we jump into this passage, because it all plays in together. As you might remember, if you've been with us and you've heard these sermons, Paul continues to tie and talk about and tie good works to the message of the gospel. Good works to the message of the gospel. Not in the erroneous way that so many sadly hold to, that being that we are saved somehow by our good works. That's not true, beloved. We're not saved by our good works. We don't contribute to our salvation or our right standing before God through our good works. It's not in that way that Paul speaks because that would be unbiblical, but rather that we are saved by God for good works. Where do we read that? Does anybody know? Ephesians 2.10. So again, this is not opinion. This is the word. This is God's word to us. He says in Ephesians 2.10, the apostle Paul writing, For we are his workmanship, God's workmanship, created 
in Christ Jesus for a big party, you know? Right? Just sit back and relax, you know? Or do nothing, you know? Created in Christ Jesus. There's a purpose. There's a purpose for him saving you, right? A mission. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God himself prepared beforehand, before we were saved, before there was even a world, that we should walk in them, that we should execute, that we should do these things that God has called us to do. Good works, these good works. And there's a purpose in them. And, you know, good works, I think we need to be probably just continue to define things because you say something and people have an idea of what you're saying, but it's really not biblical. They just think of good works like any good thing someone might, any nice thing someone might do. That's not really a biblical definition of good works. Let me give it a shot. Someone could probably do a better job, but here, let me give you a shot of a biblical definition of good works. It is the good, the righteousness that God has commanded and empowered us to do in Christ, us being those who are in Christ, saved by him and set free from sin by him and empowered by him through his spirit and directed by him through his word. And it, it is these good works that we do or they are done in honor of God and for his glory. They're not done for our glory. They're not done to, to get something. They're not done to make us look good. They're done for him and according to him and for his purposes. God, that's biblical, if you will, good works. That's my shot at a definition. They're the good he, it is the good that he has called us to do for his glory. And so, really, good, these good works can only really be done by those who are in Christ. So, you see these things tied together throughout the letter. Good works and the gospel. Good works and the gospel. Good works and the gospel. So, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, when Paul talks about the conduct which is supposed to be this good conduct, this righteous conduct, when he begins to describe it, this is how you are to conduct yourselves, this is how you are to behave as a Christian congregation so that you won't bring any shame upon the gospel, he then ties that conduct, those good works, to the gospel. So 2, 1 through 10, here are the good works, now I'm going to tie it to the gospel. They, are, they shouldn't be divided. If you have a gospel without coming out of that good works, then you have a distorted gospel or diminished in some sense. If you have good works without the gospel, then you have a salvation by works. So he then ties it to the gospel. That's in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And he says, in, in describing the gospel there, when he pulls out truths from it, he dips into that glorious well that is the gospel. He says the message of the gospel teaches us, again, he's tying it back, he's He's demonstrating, this is why I've called you to these things. The message of the gospel teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, this age that we are in. This teaching of the gospel, and we've covered all this, is just review. 
is grounded in the truth, and it was right there in the text, that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, all bad works, and to purify for himself a people zealous for good works. Good works. This is why he saved you. Then in chapter 3, Paul again comes back to the matter of good works. This time, the emphasis is on the Christian's conduct toward outsiders, toward those who are outside of the church, those who are still lost, those who still need Christ, those who are still enslaved to their sin and don't always act very nicely because of it, those who maybe push back against Christians and the gospel, those who say awful things. And he says to the Christians, speak evil of no one. Again, with the emphasis being on outsiders, don't speak evil of them. Be gentle, show complete courtesy. And then immediately he ties those good works, that good conduct, back to the gospel. Back to the gospel. And he tells them, remember, we were lost once too. Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves of various passions and pleasures. We were just like them. We're made of the same stuff. We were messed up too. And we are what we are now, which is saved, cleansed, and made new in Christ and seeing things rightly for the first time. We are that according to God's mercy and by God's grace and nothing else. Nothing else. Our salvation was not earned. This newness of life we have was not, that we have now is never, is not deserved and it never will be. God just poured it out on us according to his mercy and by his grace. And that that reality, that truth is super important for us as Christians for our attitude to help navigate our attitude and our actions toward those that are still enslaved in their sin. Don't get haughty with them. Don't look down on them. Don't begin to condemn them. You are just like them. And the only reason you're any different now, the only reason you even long for righteousness and have begun to hate sin is because God did a work in your life. He drew you out of all that mess. He saved you. He's made you new. Beyond that, beyond that, it's so helpful to go back to the gospel as we're called to act in a certain way and behave in a certain way, good works, toward the lost, is the confidence that it gives us. Look, you were messed up too. But God saved you. You had nothing to do with it. You didn't fix yourself. God fixed you and is fixing you. God did it. And so you realize, look, no one's, no one's beyond God's saving hand. Yeah, they're fools, and now I see how foolish they are. But I was a fool too, and God saved me. And so that just motivates me, encourages me, strengthens me, gives me confidence to stay the course, continue to... Speak the word. Make him known. God will save people. And then, all this is leading up to where we are. And then in chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says to Titus, insist on these things. And immediately, directly in the context, it's the message of the gospel, the truths of the gospel that he just laid out there in chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, and the good works that... God has called the Christians to do through the Apostle Paul via this letter. 
Insist on these things. Why, Paul? So that those who have believed in God, so insist on these things, insist on the truths of the gospel and the good works that we are called to do as a result of the gospel, believing the gospel, being connected to Christ. He has saved you for this purpose. He has prepared these things for you to do. And he has empowered you, enabled you to do them by setting you free from sin and granting you his Holy Spirit. That's the whole purpose, that you might make him known. So he says, insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. He goes on to say, these things are excellent That is of great value and profitable. That is beneficial. These things are the gospel and good works flowing out of the gospel. The good things that God has called us to do and enabled us and empowered us to do according to his purposes and for his glory. That's the church. That's supposed to be the church and and its primary mission, its principal concern. Huh? It's primary, it's main concern. Make him known, advance his cause. How do we do that? By life and lip, witnessing to the Savior, telling of him and demonstrating him the gospel through good works, the good works that we are called to do. That brings us to verse (laughs) 9. He said all that. He's right at the end. Paul knows, he knows well about diversion tactics. So he says in verse 9, remember, I want you to devote yourself, teach them to devote themselves to these things. Verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they are unprofitable, so not beneficial. It's the exact opposite of the things I just told you to focus on. Those things are beneficial, and they are worthless, of no value. They are not excellent. There's no value in them. But if there wasn't a danger of the church getting caught up in such things, then there would be no need for the warning. He goes on. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. And then Paul turns immediately, really just these final concluding instructions. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, For I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos and the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. There he is again, right back at the same thing. So as to help causes of urgent need and not be unfruitful. And then his closing, all who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Before we look at verse 9 as we jump jump into this, and I'm I'm not going to cover every little thing in this section, just pull out some of of what's there. But before we look back at verse 9, I want to remind you of what Paul 
or remind you that Paul left Titus, why he left Titus uh, in Crete, which is an island. Why did he leave Titus there? I'm just going to quickly refresh your memory. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. The text says, Paul says, put, I left you there to put what remained into order. So there's congregations there on the island, fledgling congregations, gatherings of Christians in different communities, churches, if you will, local churches on the island. And there were things that needed to be addressed, things that needed to be put into order. And he wanted Titus, his trusted fellow worker in the gospel ministry, to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. In other words, and we dealt with all this, but appoint shepherds, those who would care for those local congregations, in every place where there was a congregation, every town, every local city, town. The elders... He then lays out these qualifications. The elders, one of them, he said, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, right doctrine, the teachings of the scriptures and of Christ, and also to rebuke those who contradict right doctrine, healthy doctrine, sound doctrine. Why? Well, why would he say that? Because sound doctrine was being contradicted there on the island, okay? And so these poor fledgling churches were being taken advantage of, hurt uh, by these folks who were leading them astray. Titus 1.10, Paul says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. The circumcision party, Judaizers, they were the most active offenders. And if, if you don't remember... This would be Jews, basically, who, if you will, accepted Christ on some level, uh, the Jesus as their Messiah, yet they were promoting or continuing to promote uh, Judaism in, in its form with its problems, especially in regard to some of their speculative teaching and their, de- their devotion to the law and to various rules and regulations developed by their rabbis and their teachers. And so, while they theoretically embraced Christ, they were trying to bring um, stuff over from Judaism and, and lay it over Christ. And that was a serious problem, including things like, you must be circumcised to be saved. Yeah, you Gentiles, uh, that's fine that you've accepted Christ, but you also must be circumcised like we are in order to really enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Things of that nature. Uh, certain dietary laws and restrictions, all things found, some of things, not all of them, found in the Mosaic law. But Paul says they were teaching what they ought not to teach. Okay? That's what they were doing. So he commands Titus to rebuke them sharply that they might be sound in the faith. Because he did not want anyone devoting themselves to Jewish myths, this is what he says in 1.13 and 14, and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. They're telling you, do this, but it has, it's not attached to the truth or God's word or the scriptures. And they're busy talking about Jewish myths. And I said to you before, what is that about? When we looked at that, we don't know the exact content of these Jewish myths, But according to one source, they were legends or fictitious tales added to Old Testament history. So you had these fictitious tales about Adam and Moses and Elijah and other Old Testament saints. And and they were this is what they were giving themselves to and, and making 
primary and important and spending lots of time and energy focused on. Jewish myths and commands that no Christian should follow because they're not according to the word of God, the truth. Paul closes that section out in chapter 1 by saying they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. He says they are unfit for any good work. And I can tell you that they were unfit for any good work because the gospel was not their primary concern. It was something else. And it is the gospel that makes one, if they're focused on it, fit for the good work or works that God has called his saved people to. So, back to our text. But avoid foolish, verse 9, or senseless, you could say, controversies, genealogies, dissensions, arguments is another translation, and quarrels about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless. Beloved, these unprofitable and worthless discussions, if you will, that some folks were fixed on and having other people get fixed on were no doubt generated, at least in part, by the empty talkers Paul described in chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, that I just kind of quickly took you back through, the Judaizers. And we can, you can see the connections here. Quarrels about the law. That's the Mosaic law. That comes out of Judaism, and, and the quarreling especially about it. Genealogies, that was a, something very common, that, and we'll look at that in a second, that Jews would have these discussions and odd discussions about the genealogies found in the Scriptures. The problem being addressed here in 3.9, it looks very similar to the one that we find in 1 Timothy. Uh, the Apostle Paul there wrote to Timothy, who's in Ephesus, different place, different co-worker in the ministry. And he says there, just so that it kind of helps us understand what might be going on, what's being addressed, he says in verse 3 of chapter 1 in 1 Timothy, as I urged you, Timothy, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus... So again, he leaves his trusted co-worker behind to take care of business and address some matters within the church. Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, any different doctrine from which the apostles were teaching, who were the authorized representatives of Jesus Christ. Nor, verse 4, to devote themselves. What's the Christian to be devoting themselves to? The good works, right, that we are called to by God in order to advance Him and to make Christ known to this lost and dying world. Nor to devote themselves, but here's what people are devoting themselves to instead. Christian people or people within the church. Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. There it is again. And then listen to what Paul says. Which promote... This devotion to these things, it promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Let's pause for a second. Rather than the stewardship that is from God that is by faith. Another translation. 
rather than God's redemptive plan that operates by faith. That's a good translation. In other words, it moves you away from the primary concern, right? Or the principal concern, the main thing that you should be focused on, onto these other things. What's the main thing the one sh- that Christians should be focused on? God's redemptive plan that operates by faith. Or another even more simple translation says, rather than God's work, which is by faith. And God's work is for his people to witness to his son, their savior, by life, what they do, and lip, what they say. What diversion tactics. He goes on to say, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, going away from, have these things that we're calling you to, have wandered away into vain discussion. Meaningless talk is another translation. Empty discussion, another translation. Desiring, he says, to be teachers of the law. That's what they want. That's, that's what's really important to them. They want to try to educate and instruct the people concerning the Mosaic law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions, meaning that when they speak, they speak as if they really know what they're talking about and they're an authority in such matters. There was, beloved, and you know, the enemy of us the people of God and God himself, he's been around for a while. Yeah? A really long time. And he's watched humanity, and he's good at what he does as far as disrupting uh, the efforts of the church and uh, disturbing and all the terrible things that he does. Anything. Look, he can't stop. So he can't stop people from being saved. (laughs) He can't. He can't do it. He can't stop it. God's going to work it out. He's going, to, he's going to bring all of his chosen people unto himself. That's what he's going to do. He happens to do that through the church, ministering and doing what it's supposed to do, good works, professing Christ, living out the gospel so that people see the gospel on display and are drawn to it. That's what he does. So what does the enemy have left to do? Well, maybe I can slow them down. Maybe, maybe, maybe I can just sidetrack them enough so that what should be principal or primary in their focus or their concern, uh, instead of mounting all of their efforts toward this one thing, I'll distract them in a number of ways so that hopefully I can just, you know, stop it. Not stop it, but at least do my part to fight against God. I mean, that's really, in the end, that's what he's doing, all these efforts to fight against God and God's purposes, to call people unto himself. So... There, I said all that because I could see this draw to the law and someone wanting to, now a Christian, but the Mosaic law, you just, if you, and I'll just say this quickly, Moses was everything to the Jewish people. He really was. He was, I mean, he was just so exalted, so held up, and they, they almost worshiped the law that was given through Moses, the, the law of God. And so those who had anything to do with the law or were communicators of the law or experts on the law were... Uh, thought very highly of. They were esteemed in Jewish culture. So I could see, because of man's pride, them wanting to attach themselves to something that would bring them great 
honor or praise or people would look up to them, you know. The gospel calls us to die to self, to live a humble life, to deny our pride. Ah, who wants that? You know, so, so let's go over here. Let's attach ourselves to something that will bring me accolades or uh, cause me to be noticed within the body. When, you know, the gospel is the exact opposite. Be a servant. Be a servant. Live for God, not for yourself, you know. So the enemy, he's good at this stuff. His diversion tactics, they are many. And here, you know, in this text in Timothy, it talks about these genealogies, these genealogies. What is going on there? It's the same thing we see about genealogies in Titus. They're, they're spending time talking about genealogies. They're devoting themselves to genealogies. One writer says it probably dealt with allegorical or fictitious interpretations of Old Testament genealogical lists. You know, the genealogies that we see that track this person was born to this person who was born to this person which were very important because it was tracking the coming of Christ and the people and the nation of Israel through whom which the Messiah would come, right? But instead of that being the focus that these point to and help us track God's plan progressively being worked out, they start to talk about other things, weird things, making allegorical interpretations, totally subjective, has nothing to do really with the word of God, but they're fun to talk about and fanciful and that's the focus, one writer says concerning these myths, exactly what these myths and genealogies involved, it's not exactly known. Whatever their nature, though, he says, they were empty of any spiritual value and led only to further speculation, questions, and arguments, because then they would get into arguments about what this meant or didn't mean. And again, entirely subjective and, you know. It goes on to say, such speculations were to be avoided because they did not further God's plan. You're spending your time doing what, exactly? Discussing genealogies. And not even discussing in the sense of, how does this point to Christ, but I think it means this. What does it mean to you? Oh, I don't think it means that. And then, they're getting into, and then you're spending time and wasting energy and having arguments about such things. He goes on to say, such speculations were to be avoided because they did not further God's plan, which is grasped and implemented not by human imaginings, but by faith. By contrast, human speculations tend to lead off down endless blind tunnels, which serve only to confuse and con obscure God's truth. So that's exactly what's going on. And so now back to our text in Titus 3.9, he says, but avoid foolish, senseless or, you know, another way to say it, senseless controversies, genealogies. He's, just a, he's listing these things. These are foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, arguments about these things, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And that's what you are, that's what some folks were more about than anything else. That's what they wanted to spend their time and energy on uh, within the bodies there. Let's talk about these things. And not only talk about them, let's argue about them. Let's, you know, and it's interesting because I'll just tell you in my studies, it says avoid foolish controversies, okay? That word controversies there, it's interesting, that word controversies. If you look up the Greek definition, one way to define it, the Greek word that's translated controversies is argument involving worthless speculation. Argument involving worthless speculation. It's not even... You couldn't even call it good speculation. I think that exists. There's some good speculation. It's worthless. It's, it's doing nothing for the cause of Christ or to advance the gospel or to help 
the people of God become more like Christ and demonstrate the power of the gospel. It's doing nothing for these things, which should be the primary things, the main thing that the church is emphasizing and focused on. Doing nothing. It's distracting. It's taking them away from these things. By the way, speculation. That's, that's uh, the forming of theory or conjecture without firm evidence. So it, it's not... It's, it might be loosely associated, and it generally was. It was it, in fact, it was. It was loosely associated with something in the Scriptures, but then they immediately leave the Scriptures and let their minds start wandering and talking and fighting and arguing about things that have nothing to do with what the Scriptures are really calling the believer to. One writer says, controversies is from a Greek word. It has the basic sense of searching or investigating, but it came to be used for discussion or debate, especially that which was controversial and contentious. So these weren't just even just casual conversations or discussions. They were, the nature of them was controversial. And um, lended themselves to argumentation and arguments. That's great. I mean, that, you know, the enemy's just like, <laughs> look at them. Uh, this is so fun. Yeah, they're saved. Not much I can do about that, but uh, if I can just keep them, you know, focused on uh, these religious things over here that really do nothing for the cause of Christ, I'm good. That's what was happening. At least that's what Paul saw and was warning against. These useless, unprofitable, and worthless discussions, though, as I said, religious in nature, beloved, would divert Christians away from what really mattered, from what should be their principal concern, witnessing to their Savior by life and lip, proclaiming the gospel to the world in both word and deed, lives, transform lives, change lives, changed by the gospel. One writer said, it has been said that there is a danger that a man may think himself religious because he discusses religious things. And that sure describes a lot of folks, I think. Another author says, Paul was quite certain concerning this text in Titus that the real task of the Christian lay in Christian action. And that is, of course, being devoted to good works that are rooted in and motivated by the gospel and witness to its power and goodness. He goes on to say, that is by no means to say that there is no place for discussion, but it is to say that the discussion which does not end in action is very largely wasted time. You sit around, you talk about this stuff, and what? What's the outcome? What's the result? And again, this isn't even good stuff. You're not even, we're not talking about making sure that we've got the word of God right. We're talking about foolish speculations attached to, in some way, to the word. So it's still of a religious nature, and that, I guess, makes it okay. No, it doesn't. It's worthless, Paul says. And then he says, avoid, right? Avoid. Avoid foolish controversies. That's what he tells Titus, and through Titus, the congregations there on the island of Crete, 
and through the New Testament, us as well. Avoid foolish controversies. Avoid all of this. These these ridiculous conversations and discussions and argumentations concerning genealogies and quarrels about the law. They're unprofitable and worthless. Avoid. It means deliberately shun and stand aloof from. That's what the word means, the Greek word. Deliberately shun. Deliberately. I'll have nothing to do with that. Why? Because they should have no place. They should not be a part of my life. As one author says, they produce no spiritual benefits and lead to no constructive results. Christians should not engage or participate in such worthless and useless matters. And Titus, of course, would be called to set the example. He goes on to say then, in verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped. Another translation is perverted and sinful. And the word there is actually a, it's a present tense verb, so or sinning. They are in the act of sinning in what they are doing. They're perverted and sinning. And he says he is self-condemned. One translation of this verse here says, knowing that such a person is twisted by sin. Twisted by sin. Remember, these are not people that are like out there. They're people that are associating with the body of Christ, the church. Professing to believe in God, but denying him by their works. And it could even be someone, it could even be someone in this case who is a true believer, right? Because, and I think that is the case because there's a warning here. He warns them once or twice, right? So you're hoping that the true believer, right, would correct. They would be like, oh, I didn't realize that, uh, that these things that I'm doing are not helpful. I just got caught up in it. And they're not helpful to, to our cause, to God's cause. They are distracting. They diminish the work. They they move us away from where we should really focus all of our efforts over to here. They are diversion tactics, if you will, of the enemy, so on and so forth. I will stop doing that. You know, that's that's why you would give a warning, right? So I would imagine it's folks too that are bona fide, true believers who just get caught up in all of this nonsense. He says, as for a person who stirs up division, division really being the result of these foolish controversies, discussions that Paul says in verse 9 are to be avoided. In other words, these, these, these discussions, these controversies, these foolish controversies are, lead to division within the body. They're argumentative. They create tensions between people, hostilities. Titus 3.10 in the NIV translates it this way, warn a divisive person that's what it just says, a divisive person. So this is the one who stirs up division. Warn them once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. The New American Standard Bible translates it this way. Reject, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. Factious, factious. That's one way to translate the underlying Greek word, factious, given to or promoting internal dissension. Dissension being disagreement that leads to discord. Discord being disharmony. 
In other words, it breaks up the unity of the church. They're to be unified in doctrine and in purpose. They're to be united as one to fight the good fight, to do battle, not in their own strength or in their own power, but in the, in the power of Christ and His Holy Spirit, making Christ known, living out these good works to bring the gospel to the world. Diversion tactics. Give me a second. Lost my train of thought. These are ultimately arguments, These what are being promoted by these factious people or divisive people, they are arguments involving worthless speculation. Worthless speculation. Discussion that is controversial and contentious, though religious, but of no benefit to make or help lead the Christian more into godliness and toward God's purpose for them in saving them. It doesn't do anything. And so it should have no part of us. We should not give time to it. And in fact, there's an extra warning or an extra instruction here. And the person that is doing it and promoting it needs to be dealt with in the sense of warning them, right? And warning there doesn't mean like, hey, stop it. And then you walk away. But the word warning has the idea of teaching, instruction, and admonishing. It's all of those things. So you would, you would, What's being told, what we're being told here is you go, you explain to them why this is not helpful, this is not good, this is not right, to be devoting yourself to these things. We've been called to devote ourselves to these things. Stop spending so much time and stop drawing our people into these discussions that do nothing to advance the gospel of Christ, okay? So, they're warned. Because they are stirring up division in the body. And division, again, think about the, that military platform I was telling you about, right? And the diversion tactics used by the Allies to fight against the enemy in World War II. If they could, uh, the army was, that they were, we were fighting against was strong. But if you can divide them up and ha- cause them to go to different fronts and maybe diminish uh, all of their power at the front that we intended to fight at, then we might have a chance, and certainly it, it, helped a great, it helped a great deal. And it's no different in that sense in what Satan is trying to do. If I, if I can just divide the body, if I can take their eyes off the prize, if you will, or really I should say off what God has called us to, to, to be our primary focus, to be what we elevate to, what is most important, then I have a shot of slowing down this machine, this this force that is the church. And we're to be aware of his schemes and devices, are we not? And this is why we're told of these things, because we are in a war, a spiritual war. I hope, I hope you know, just in me trying to communicate that to you, that you get that at least at that level, that you get there's a real, at minimum, that you get that there's a real war going on and that there's tactics being used to, to fight this battle I think, you know, for some people, they just think the church is, you know, it's, to them, it's more of like a social club. You know, it's a place where you gather together to meet other people. Well, certainly, we do meet other people and maybe, you know, hang out and make friends. Certainly, we do, hopefully, hang out and make friends. I mean, but that's not, 
you know, if you want that, you don't need the church. There's plenty of social clubs you can go to if that's what you're looking for. The church is not about that. The church is, if you will, a military organization, and not in the sense where we're going to go, you know, get our guns and fight the government, not in that sense, but we are, wait, wait, wait a minute, we are an army, right? So we, we used to sing this song, a good soldier for Christ. I mean, this is how Paul speaks. He talks about being a good soldier. He talks about fighting. He talks about a real spiritual battle. He talks about taking up armor. For what? To fight the good fight, to advance Christ, to make him known. And so church, first and foremost, is a place to gather together and to be instructed and taught that we might fight well according to God's word. That we don't, that we don't fight dishonorably, but that we fight in honor and unto his glory. It's a fight until he comes or takes us home. You know, why, again, why are you so worked up? Because you would be worked up if you were in a war. Right? It, it changes the game. It, it really says it isn't a game, guys. This is life and death. This is everything. This is eternal life and death. And there's a real war going on, and we need to be concerned then about the health of the body, not just because I don't want to lose my social group or I'd hate to not have my friends around anymore if the church dissolved or went away. No, because this is a front where God is fighting here in the city of Fontana and, and the surrounding cities. That's how I see it. And I, I trust that a number of you see it that way too. But I'd like to bring all of you on board and reinforce those of you who see it that way. It's a real battle. Anyway. So these guys are supposed, these people who are divisive in this way, who are, who are promoting this junk that's dividing the body, they, you give them two warnings, and, and then if it fails, you have nothing to do with them. You literally reject them. And one writer says, wow, that, you know, or someone says, is that harsh? And one writer says, uh, it's actually very reasonable in, in this rejection. He says, further efforts would not be a good stewardship of his time, that is, Titus's time, or the elders' time, and energies. In other words, I've warned you once, I've explained it to you, so I get that, right? You come to someone, you warn them, don't do that again, and here's why. You wouldn't want to do that, right? I mean, you're part of the body of Christ, and you understand we're in a spiritual battle, and you want to bring us together and unite us in this fight. Listen, we have limited resources, limited in the sense that we only have so much time, we only have so much energy, you don't want to be causing us to spend our energy on things that do nothing to advance the cause, right? You get it? Yeah? Oh, yes, I get it. Okay, good. And then, oops, they mess up, and they find themselves doing it again, because you know old habits are hard to break, and they say, now listen, this is it. I'm just saying, don't do this again. All right, after one or two warnings, hey, then something else is going on, something other than you just needed to be, you know, instructed because you didn't know because you were ignorant, and or maybe you fell into it by accident because you got caught up in the nonsense. Now you continue to do it? No, something else is going on. And so for this person, I'm not going to give you any more of my time and energy because it's limited. I'm going to invest it where it needs to be invested, not on you. And he says it would give the offender an undeserved sense of importance. There is a sense in which, no, my time, it's limited, 
It's going to be poured over here, not on you. You're out, you're out doing something. You're doing something else. You're not really for God or for his people. If you were, why would you keep doing this? Why are you giving assistance to Satan? And see, and then that people, if they really understand it's a war, right? You find a traitor in your midst or someone who, even if they're not a traitor, maybe that's a harsh, hard word, but they're, through their actions, continually undermining the strength and abilities of that unit out on the battlefield? Are you just going to say, it's okay, you know? It's all right. No. That's why the language is here. That's why the hard decisions that need to be made. That's why. No. He's undermining the effectiveness of this unit. And we warned him once and twice. And baseball rules. Three strikes, you're out, girl, boy. Whatever you are, you're out. That's it. You did it again. And I think Paul says it's, it's, it's right to reject him, right? This is why he throws this extra line in, because he's become basically perverted and is continuing his sinning, thus being self-condemned. One writer says that is by his very persistence in his sinful behavior, he has condemned himself, thus putting himself on the outside. He has demonstrated he's not part of you. If he was, he would have not continued to do this. This is a willful divisiveness. So he's demonstrating he's not part of us. He's put himself on the outside. Hence, he needs to be rejected by Titus in the church. That's what he's saying. So to summarize all that, he says, don't worry, we're on, I know. Whereas the doctrines and duties of grace are excellent and profitable. The doctrines and duties of grace are excellent and profitable, as we see in verse 8 of chapter 3. These matters that we looked at in verse 9 are unprofitable and useless because those who engage in such debates, they distract the church from its mission and purpose. And I only have one thing to say about the final uh, sentences. So then, Paul, now he closes it out in his final words. You'll see that Paul stays focused on what matters. Don't be distracted, church. Don't get caught up in those things that are worthless and useless. They are diversion tactics. That's all they are. They may seem religious because they attach themselves to religious things, but they do nothing to move you closer to Christ or to advance Christ or to make him known to a lost and dying world who needs Christ and needs you to be doing these things that they might come into contact with Christ, either by your mouth or by your life or both. You see? And so immediately then, he gets right back to business, right back to business, the business that is most important, the mission. And he says, listen, when I send Artemis, verse 12, or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your, so, okay, do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. So these men probably were the ones who carried the letter to Titus from Paul, and then he says, see that they lack nothing, and he's going to get in one more shot, one more shot concerning uh, these things that they should be focused on and devoted to, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help causes of urgent need and not be unfruitful. And then he says, all who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Now, verse 14, there is another way... Uh, to translate verse 14, it's found in the NET, and it goes like this. Here, 
is another way that our people can learn to engage in good works, to meet pressing or necessary needs, and so not be unfruitful. In other words, I just gave you instructions. I sent these guys. I've told you what to do. I'm sending relief. You need to come back to me. I'm still here ministering. I want you to come back. These guys will take your place. We'll continue. I need you, though, here for ministry purposes, for advancing the gospel. I'm going to stay over here at this particular city over the winter. Come here. These other two guys, they brought the letter, most likely, right? But I want you to basically supply everything they need so they can continue the work And here is a great opportunity for you to do exactly what I've been calling you to do, church, which is to supply their needs, to do these good works so that you will not be unfruitful, right? Because all this other stuff that you can get caught up in is fruitless. It doesn't produce the fruit of God in your lives. And so I'll close with this, guys. We... There, if I, I probably think that most of us are not getting caught up in talking about genealogies in a weird, speculative, uh, you know, mystical sort of way, right? And we, we probably, most of us, not being in that world and coming, it was again, coming out of Judaism, Christianity, and all the clashes that were happening, we may, but we generally don't get caught up in these discussions about the Mosaic Law and the you know, all these details and these thoughts of the rabbis and all this. So, right? So, it may not be the same stuff, but, and I thought, oh, I could talk about other diversion tactics that the enemy is using, and I thought, I could just go on forever. I I could just go on forever with all the stuff that that the enemy uses to distract. And again, he's very crafty, so if if he can clothe it in some type of religiosity, then I can still be a religious person, but really doing nothing or spending my time in things that do nothing for God. N- really nothing, you know? So I-, I decided not to go that route because, A, I will certainly say something I probably shouldn't. Uh, I'll go out of bounds probably. I'll offend people unnecessarily. Sometimes I offend them necessarily, but I don't want to offend people unnecessarily. Um, I'm just not going to do that. So I, I decided to just on the positive with stay on the other side, not talk about diversion tactics. You should be aware that they exist. You should be aware that the enemy is fighting against us to divert our attentions from the principal concern. If you could get that from the message, that would be good, okay? But then the title of the sermon is staying focused on what matters. Staying focused on what matters. And... Um, when we originally started Summit, we tried to come up with a, a tagline, if you will, a motto. I don't know, because everyone said that's what you have to do when you start a church. But uh, yeah, I never saw a tagline like for Ephesus or Colossus, you know what I mean? But you got to put it in your logo because we have a logo, right? But we came up with, we knew that the call of God uh, on every church is to make disciples, right? So we wanted that to be included. That's what the Lord himself, the Lord of the church said, this is my commission to you. Go into all the world and make disciples, right? So we, we, we made the making and multiplying. So the idea is that we'd have disciples, then making disciples who would make disciples because that's the model that you see laid out in the scriptures. In other words, telling people about Jesus, seeing them, some of them come to faith, and then helping them grow to the point where they also begin to tell others about Jesus and others begin, that idea. So making and multiplying. And we didn't just say disciples, but I added the word cross, cross-centered disciples, cross-centered disciples. Why? Because 
my concern was that it, in my experience, in my years of being in a church and in churches and leading and just being a part of the body, we, these diversion tactics, there's so many of them, and we continually go off course and move away from the thing that should matter most. And so the cross, the gospel, and what all that the gospel teaches and calls us to and motivates us for, we move away from that. We get away from that. And the second we get away from that, then our fight is diminished. We're not really even fighting on the right front anymore. Or the whole church doesn't, but many do. And so we're not all united around this great cause of making Christ known, preaching Christ and him crucified and and living out this new life that God has given us so that people can see the power, the transforming power and the goodness and the beauty of the gospel so that when we tell them that God has conquered sin in Christ through the cross, they know that's true because they see that sin has been conquered in our lives. So... We need to stay focused on what matters. So I would just ask, in your life, these are some questions you can, or a question you can ask yourself. What could you point to that would, would uh, clearly communicate to anybody who saw it and thought about it that you really are focused on what matters, that you really are, that you're focused on Christ and advancing him and, and doing these things that he has called you to, right? He has prepared you for these things, these good works, these the things that you read about in Titus, reaching out appropriately to the lost people around you, loving the body of Christ, building them up, encouraging. What, is that what you are about? Is that you? Does that define you? Is that what you're really focused on? Are you taking uh, an analysis of your life and saying, where am I not uh, fulfilling these things that God has called me to? Where am I not doing these good works for God's glory that he has called me to in his word? Where is that not happening? How am I not being the wife I'm supposed to be according to God and the husband I'm supposed to be according to God or the employer or the employee or the church member or the neighbor? How am I not doing these things? How am I not exercising the good works God has called me to in that realm? How am I not doing that? Is that your, do you question, are you asking those kind of questions? And then how am I? How do I see that? Is that my focus? Is that what I'm worried about? Or am I worried about so many other things that do nothing? For God's glory. Are you focused on what matters? And this is part of the church that we keep, we get, so even myself, I'm not out of that loop, get redirected, get sidetracked. But this is the whole purpose of here. We keep calling each other back. Stay focused, stay focused, stay focused. The enemy is real. The fight is real. Come over here. We're all gathered over here. Let's fight. What are you doing over there? I don't understand what you're doing. You're not even, you're not even, what are you, that does nothing. Father in heaven, help us. (laughs) Yeah, we, we have the promise of your word, Father. We know Christ is building his church, and in that we, we find hope, but Father, you have determined to build your church through us. Oh my goodness. And so, we know we need you. Every moment of every hour, we need you. We need your word. We need your spirit. Thank you for it. We need each other. We need to help each other get back on track or stay on track. Keep the focus. And we all have a bad case of spiritual ADD. 
Father, help us to be uh, discerning concerning these things, these diversion tactics that the enemy uses in so many ways to just take us off track, to, to divide us, to diminish our focus. Father, help us, help us live in light of eternity and know that you have left us here for a time, for a time, your church, for a time. You're coming back to get your church, but you've left us here for a time, for a purpose, and it's not to have a social club. It is to fight the fight. And we will not be able to do that if we are broken into a million pieces and distracted and not focused on what you have called us to focus on, your gospel and the good works that you have prepared for us to walk in. And you have empowered us to, through the saving work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Help us, Father, in Christ's